Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. Hey everyone, it's Jake Brennan, host of Disgraceland and executive producer of Dear Young Rocker for Double Elvis. As we close out season one of Dear Young Rocker, I wanted to quickly thank all of you for checking out the show. From all of Chelsea's to my fans from Disgraceland and to all the new fans who discovered this show over the season. Just thanks a ton. We appreciate it. We've been blown away by how you've adopted the show and your feedback has meant the world to us. Right now, we need authentic stories from brave storytellers like Chelsea, bringing us together by celebrating what makes each of us unique. And the good news is that I'm also here to announce we're officially coming back for season two very soon. So thanks to all of you. For now, keep spreading the word and enjoy the season finale of Dear Young Rocker. If you're like me and the rest of the world right now, you've got some time on your hands. Feel free, if you haven't listened to Dear Young Rocker, to go back and binge all 12 episodes available now in the Dear Young Rocker feed. Thanks a lot. Hope you're healthy. Hope you're happy. And I hope to hear from you soon. Bye-bye. Dear Young Rocker, this is the final chapter for you for now. I'm not going to say much, and I'll let you get back to your story soon. All I do want to tell you is that as hard as this all seems, and even though I know you feel like you still haven't started really living yet, I'm actually really proud of you. And that's a reminder to me, too. I am still so quick to dismiss all I've done and act like everything I've accomplished and made just isn't that great for whatever reason. And to think of all the ways I could have done it better and all the people on Twitter who could point out every flaw I didn't even know I had. But I need to be proud. Proud that I've told your story, no matter what anyone thinks of it, and proud that I've helped some people with it. Okay, go ahead. As I walk down the sidewalk with my base on my back, I think about that first time I hung out with Aaron, the guy I still refer to in my head as Craigslist guy. After I answered his antisocial loner post, he told me he took classes at UMass Lowell too, and I couldn't believe it. It seemed like a sign. So we planned to have dinner at the cafeteria. The same one I'm going to right now. When I told my roommate I was leaving to go on an internet date, she said, be careful. I performatively grabbed a shaving razor out of my shower caddy and threw it in my tote bag. She said it would be a good story to tell at our wedding if we ended up getting married someday. I got to the calf really early so I could get my food first and sit down at a table. I hoped that if he only saw me from the waist up, I could make a better first impression by hiding the part of myself that I hate. When he came in and started walking over to me, I immediately wanted to run away. He hadn't wanted to share a picture with me because he said he didn't have any good ones, so I didn't really know what he looked like, 
but there was no mistaking this was him. Even from across the room, he was immediately so intensely focused on me. He made eye contact with me right away, which always makes me feel weird, and he didn't let up for the whole walk to the table, and then the entire time we sat there. It was like he was taking in my every single breath and movement. He's got dark curly hair and blue eyes, which to me is usually an attractive combo, but something about his face was just weird, and it kind of freaked me out. Something was gnome-like about him. He has these small, beady eyes. I couldn't even really tell they were blue. He kept laughing at everything I said, even if it wasn't funny. Like I was the most incredible, entertaining person he had ever met in his entire life. He had on one of those super tight long-sleeve Under Armour shirts football players wear. It seemed like he was trying to show off his body. That made me feel weird, too. He asked me so many questions about myself that I didn't really learn anything about him. This intense attention on me really made me nauseous. I just wanted to leave as soon as possible and never talk to him again. But after he finished eating and made fun of me for barely touching my food, he said we should go on an adventure and explore the building, even though I knew there's nothing in here but a cafeteria. I hoped it would be quick so I could go home. We went up into the stairwell. Even though there was nothing at the top but a locked emergency exit, he started trying to open the door with a credit card which I really didn't like because I kept thinking about the fire alarm going off and people running up and seeing me with this weird-looking guy. He just kept saying, where there's a will, there's a way, and I kept saying, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this. I focused on how his face scrunched up as he tried to pry the lock open. He looked even more like a gnome. How could anyone ever kiss that face? We finally went back down into the lobby, and I said I had to go back now to study. I looked at him, and he moved closer to me. So I raised my arms to give him a hug, but he pulled me in really, really tight and kissed me. He squeezed my entire torso in this vice-like hug the whole time. After a second of this, I realized... It was intended to be way more than just a peck, and that my eyes were still open, and worst of all, other humans coming in and out of the cafeteria were witnessing this. I didn't like how his mouth looked, and something about how soft it was on my own kind of grossed me out. I eventually pulled away, and he was staring deeply into my eyes again. It kind of felt like the same look you get from a cat when you can tell they're about to bite you. I somehow still felt his stare on my body as I left. It really doesn't make any sense that I decided to see him again. 
As I go through the doors into that same cafeteria now, I walk past the pizza slices and I think about how after that date, when I got back to my room, I had microwaved a frozen pizza and ate it so fast that I burned the crap out of the roof of my mouth. I decide now I'll have a hot dog and I put every kind of topping on it, even the relish, which looks like boogers coming out of the dispenser. When I get to the tables, I see some of my fellow bass players, including James, and I sit down with them. The bearded guy asks me where I got my pink gig bag, and I tell him online and make a dumb joke about how no one will steal my bass because of it, but they all say they want it. As the only girl in the program, I couldn't resist getting a pink case. If I'm going to stand out anyway, I might as well own it, right? They start talking about prog rock bands, and my brain stops following within 10 seconds. But instead of feeling stressed about not keeping up with the conversation, I'm just happy to be at a table with other humans who do the same thing as me and aren't trying to make out with my face. It's kind of like the good days of high school. A couple of them are also sound recording majors, and they start joking about who's going to drop out first because of the math requirements. Apparently, that's the reason less than half of us sound recording majors end up finishing. Calc is brutal, one of the dudes says. I tell them, I had the same professor when I took it last year, and I got an A, but I think the syllabus is different this year. You got an A, two of them say in unison, as if I just said my uncle is Jacko Pistorius or something. Yep. I know I won't drop out. I can't let people think I'm bad at math or not smart enough to be a sound engineer. Especially boys, and really especially my dad. The others get up to go to class and leave me and James at the table together. The seven of us first-year bassists sit in a circle in one of the narrow side classrooms. I look at the staff lines painted on the chalkboard while Chuck writes out a quarter-note walking line. He sits down with a guitar and counts off. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. And we all play together. I can hear that one of us is adding extra notes and inflections. Then, while Chuck keeps playing the chords, we go around and play the line one at a time. And he tells us we can embellish it if we're feeling it. I play it mostly straight and just turn a couple of the quarter notes into eighths. The next guy tries to add more than me, but doing that makes him completely miss a couple of the root notes. I smile to myself. That's what you get for trying too hard. Then it gets to that kid. You know, there's got to be one in every class. He somehow plays almost completely up and down the neck in the course of the four-chord pattern. 
I think about how that would sound really stupid and unnecessary if other instruments were playing and how as bassists we're supposed to be holding it down and supporting the other players. Chuck didn't ask us to play a friggin' solo, bro. It just didn't feel solid or, like, bassy to me. Like, play the sax or something. And if you're so great, why can't you show any restraint, huh? Poser. Then again, I've never listened to jazz for fun ever and think it's boring, so maybe I'm the poser. Maybe I'm the one who shouldn't be here, and I'm just feeling pissed at this kid because I know I can't do that. Once again, I wonder, am I better than everyone, or worse? The show-off guy makes this, oh me, I didn't do anything special face, when he's done. But I know he's expecting glowing praise because he answers really fast when Chuck critiques it. Like, okay, yeah, okay. Chuck's doing a good job as a teacher, praising us all equally, but every time this kid plays, he seems another light year ahead of me. And I feel worse about my own playing. I hate to admit it, but I actually do wish I was the one playing up and down the neck. My line was so boring but I didn't want to risk playing bonk notes in front of everybody. I do a lot better when a bunch of people aren't watching me. Like, I can come up with super cool bass lines if I have a little time to plan it out, but I don't know how I'll ever be able to think fast enough about the notes and the chord on the spot like that. I want to be able to do it perfectly before I show off. I want to be a jazz bass expert first. But I also don't at all. Whatever. Jazz is stupid anyway, I think, as I walk back to my room. Each of my steps feels like a quarter note, and I can't stop myself from walking at the tempo we practice. Back in my room, I see that my roommate is gone, as usual. It's kind of nice that she's never here. I see a message from Aaron. It says, Hey, what's up, C. Urchin? He calls me that because my email is C. Urson. I tell him I'm chilling in my room alone. He says he's been meditating a lot lately and that we should try meditating at the same time and see if we can connect with each other. Like, mentally. That sounds kind of weird, but I also kind of like the idea of connecting in a non-physical way. I believe it's totally possible. I close my eyes and I think about him. How he left me totally alone for nine months after that weird date, and then randomly messaged me. He said we should go roller skating, and I said sure because I still haven't really made friends yet since switching majors, and I used to love going to the roller rink with my dad when I was little. It ended up being the funnest date I've ever been on. I liked zipping around to the Spice Girls and Ace of Bass, 
and I was way better at skating than him. He kept falling down and laughing at himself, and it made me laugh and feel good about myself. Every time I tried to help him up, he'd try to pull me down too. I felt like a little kid. When we left, he didn't try to kiss me this time. He said he liked my aura and respected me, and I was starting to believe it. He sends me another message and says he thinks he can see his skin glowing from the vibes I'm sending. I really don't know if he's being sincere, but I know he's laughing either way and that he's trying to say he likes me. As we chat, a new friend request pops up. Well, that doesn't happen very often. It's another guy. He doesn't look familiar. Does he even go here? Doesn't look like it. I look at his pictures. He's got really nice green eyes. He's kind of muscular looking, which is a thing I didn't realize I liked until right now. I don't usually like people just from their pictures. I have to hear them talk or see them play or do something interesting first. I definitely wouldn't have met up with Aaron if I had seen his face first. But I feel like if what he says is true, that you can sense people even when they aren't near you, like even over the internet, that I'm getting good vibes from this new person. I click through all of his profile and tagged pictures. He's pretty cute in all of them. He plays guitar. I wonder why he friended me. Well, whatever happens, I know two things. I'm never letting anyone make out with me again until I decide it's a good idea first. And I'm sure as hell not letting anyone get in the way of me finishing this music recording degree. Well, that is if I can get past learning jazz bass, and even worse, my goddamn oral skills class. I close Facebook. I plug in my headphones, load the ear training CD into my laptop, and tell myself I won't give up practicing this time, no matter how much I want to scream and cry. You can set the program to use four different tones. A flute, piano, guitar, or generic computer tone. I click the flute tone first, since sometimes that one seems easier for me to hear. I do the basic intervals, but as soon as I try even the simplest chords, the notes start doing the thing they always do. Like, they're blurring in my ear and I can't separate them out. You're supposed to be able to hear the notes in the chords separately, like looking at a rainbow and being able to see red, yellow, and blue stacked on top of each other. But to me, it's just like the rainbow melted and the colors have mixed together into just one ambiguous brown that could be made up of any combo of shades. 
Maybe if I change the instrument from flute to piano, it will help, I think. Sometimes switching instruments makes the edges of the notes seem sharper, like they seem more different from each other. I click onto the cheesy fake piano sound. Then I try what's supposed to be a guitar to see if I can hear one or the other better, but they all don't work eventually. Every time I change, At first, it seems a little easier to hear the notes, but no matter what, after only a few minutes of practicing, they just seem to get slippery, like when you get bleach on your hands and it feels like your fingerprints melted off and you can't pick anything up. At that point, I can't even tell a seventh from a sixth. I think about the colorblind kid in my elementary school and how he used to get angry and cry when we talked about colors because he was trying so hard to see them, but he just couldn't. That's how I feel. Sometimes, when it gets really, really bad, I go back to just doing basic intervals, like root fifth, and I can't even hear if a note is higher or lower than another note. How in the hell did I play cello so well? I guess maybe because you can feel the vibrations of the pitches in your body since the instrument is right between your legs. But the computer-generated piano doesn't do that for me. I try one more chord, and I know it's different notes. But when I try to sing them, it all comes out the same, like some dumb, tone-deaf person trying to sing. I throw my music theory book at the wall. Mr. Buckles likes to wear one pink sock and one blue sock. I can't stop looking at them while he writes on the chalkboard with one hand and hits notes on the piano with the other. My focus goes from the socks to the rainbow flag on his backpack and back again. I can't get my focus to land on the pitches he's playing. I hate this. I hate his socks and him. But maybe that's just me being defensive. My other classes can be hard, but nothing I can't figure out. Music theory has a really strict old professor who locked me out of the room when I was one minute late one time, but at least that class is all a formula, like math. You just study it and practice, and you can get good at it and write your little minuets out on the music paper. Music history is a lot of listening and charting out symphonies and stuff. But that's also just memorization, and it's an interesting subject. I like hearing the parts when I listen to classical. It's funny no one mentioned this class when they warned me about how hard the SRT major is. Clearly, I am abnormally bad at it. I guess this is my version of calculus hell. 
I had some trouble hearing pitches in my high school music class when we were just learning simple intervals and chords. But I thought I'd get better with enough practice and the help of some teachers. I tried to practice over the summer before this year, but it feels like I'm getting worse every day. The more I try to hear the difference between chords and pitches, the more they seem to mush together until I can't even sing a major scale anymore. My ears get so tired so quickly. Sitting at my computer with my ear training practice software has become such torture, I barely even try anymore. Mr. Buckles plays four notes at once as a chord and asks us to sing the four pitches from bottom to top. Then he plays three chords in a row. And asks us to sing all the notes from all of them. He tells us only the root note of the first chord. And we're supposed to figure out what all the others are by hearing what kind of chords they are and calculating which notes would fit. You made the first chord major, he tells the person who sings before me. I actually sing the notes somewhat okay, but I have no idea what they are or what kinds of chords they were. He asks us to write down the notes on our staff paper, and as soon as I pick up my pencil, I can't hear them in my mind anymore. This always friggin' happens to me. I try to sing the root note of the first chord to myself, but everyone humming around me distracts me, and I lose it. I try a bunch of different notes, and they all sound like they could be it. I know it's a C, he told us, but how do you sing a C? Once I've picked what I think is a C in my mind, I can't remember how the notes in the first chord sounded, never mind any of the others. So when he reveals the answers, as usual, all of mine are wrong, except the one note he gave us. I feel so crappy about it, I don't even bother changing my answers. And I handed my paper on my way out the door. I'd ask him to stay for extra help again, but last time he just said he didn't know how to help make me hear things if I didn't practice. I couldn't explain how every time I try to practice, I feel like I'm going to explode and then go tone deaf. How the notes run away from my ears. I don't know if I can face that CD again. There are four semesters of this class. If by some miracle I pass this one, I have three higher levels to get through. I'm just a rock band kid and not a real musician. And Mr. Buckles seems to know that. I sit down at a computer in the library and log into my grade report to see my midterm grades. For some reason, I couldn't get myself to do it in my own room. I let my eyes move slowly down the page. Music Theory 1, B+. Calculus 2, B. Music History, A. Bass Lessons, A-. Intro to Keyboard Playing, B+. 
Recital attendance, S for sufficient. Ensemble one, A minus. Last is oral skills. There it is. Just the shape of the letter is so unfamiliar to my eyes, it makes me shiver. My first ever F. F for failure. I am a failure. So, this is what it feels like. Even though I knew it would probably be the case, I kind of feel like all my blood is being sucked out of me into the floor as I look at it. Taking another breath in doesn't seem worth it. I sit there not breathing and looking at the F until I get a headache. I imagine telling my dad about this. I can picture the look on his face, the corners of his mouth drooping in disappointment. I thought you were going to be a sound engineer, he'll say. First you couldn't do biology, and now you can't do this, I imagine him asking. I am useless. I am stupid. I cannot do anything right. I am not good enough. I won't get through college for anything interesting. I'm too dumb, and the proof is looking right at me. I don't want to eat dinner. I don't want to breathe or move or exist. It's almost my birthday. Who gives a crap? Dear Young Rocker, Okay, once again, take a deep breath. Don't be so hard on yourself. That's the stupid blanket advice a typical adult would give you right now. But if you weren't hard on yourself, you wouldn't end up achieving the things you eventually do achieve. The more ambitious you are, the harder the setbacks feel. Instead, I would say, accept failures because they're always a part of the process but don't judge yourself over them without analyzing them first. Most failures are actually a lot smaller than we realize. You are the kind of person that looks at things very closely and very deeply. But if you pull back to the big, big picture, this really isn't a big failure or a long-term one. This isn't a failure of all of college like you seem to think it is. You can retake any college class and the first bad grade will be erased and replaced with a new better grade. Most colleges understand people encounter roadblocks and sticking points and have policies like this. Here is your first roadblock. So let's break this failure down right here, right now. Some people just shouldn't be teachers and you found one at this vulnerable moment in your new major. People who escape college without encountering at least one of these professors are very lucky. This really isn't a life-shattering crisis as much as it feels like it is. I know you have a lot of your self-esteem wrapped up in your success at this major, so I get that. But you're still putting your failure on yourself more than the teacher. You shouldn't. You're a capable person who shows up to class and tries really hard and cares. You even went for extra help. 
If you are failing a class, it means something else is wrong. Isn't that all what you would tell a friend in the same situation? I'm sure there are plenty of others struggling, even if you haven't talked to them. I know James is doing perfectly well in oral skills, and that makes you feel even more defective. But that's one person, and he has a different teacher and a different brain. You definitely aren't defective or not musical enough. Listening is a hard skill that requires very focused attention to develop, and you have trouble with focused attention. You also have anxiety, which makes you get freaked out and flustered by your inability to focus, which then shuts down your brain entirely and makes all the sounds sound the same. Almost like a colorblind person. I bet if you were patient and kind with yourself, you might actually be fine. It makes perfect sense that you can't get yourself to practice. It makes you feel terrible. It's not your fault. No one's immediately perfect at everything, and it sucks that you feel you have to be for reasons we don't have to get into here. But the fact that you can hear this stuff when you are relaxed and your ears are fresh, and that you played cello pretty well, means you are in no way tone deaf. You just get flustered, and like I said, you have some type of attention problem. And this is part of that. If you were having the same problem with reading, it would have a name for it dyslexia. And there'd be concrete resources available at your school to help you through your classes. People with dyslexia can be great writers with some support. Unfortunately, the musical equivalent of dyslexia doesn't have a name and just makes anyone who has it feel like a bad musician. When things get hard, don't assume you are terrible or that you're doing the wrong thing. Things are often the hardest, when we're doing the thing we should be doing, the thing we really care about and is important for us. It's actually a good sign that you're struggling. If it wasn't important, you wouldn't be freaking out. And once again, you are plenty good at bass. You just aren't that much of a jazz person and that's fine. It's also a biased space. A huge number of girls who start playing in jazz band in middle school drop out by college, and the pressure you feel might be a part of that. I wish you could openly talk about your struggles instead of hiding them within yourself and feeling more and more ashamed. It's not a weakness, it's normal. But you still have trouble connecting with people, so again, you're alone in this. Maybe you don't know jazz theory well yet. Okay, so what? There are plenty of other people in the program who don't either. That's why you're taking these classes, to learn these things. It's okay that some people are ahead of you in some ways. Them being good has nothing to do with you. Don't get so wrapped up in the fact that you ignore how good you are at certain things. You have a feel and a way of playing that's already great because you've been doing it for a few years now. And oh yeah, you love the bass more than anything this show-off environment and the fact that you are the only girl in your program is not a good match for a sensitive person who struggles with self-esteem and wants to feel like an A-plus student at all times. If you believe you can learn new things, you can. If you don't believe it, then you can't. You've gone through a lot already in your short time at college, 
and you're going to go through a ton more in the next few years. I don't want to give it away, but you're actually going to go through some things that are so weird and difficult, very few people get through them and come out healthy. What I'm saying is that this F is nothing. As always, I promise, you are on the path you are meant to be on, and you are not alone. It's tough to leave you, but I'll see you next time, kid. To cap off this final episode of Season 1 of Dear Young Rocker, I have a special treat for you. It's a guest letter. This one is from musician and poet Sadie Dupuy, who is most known for fronting the band Speedy Ortiz, but who also plays and produces music under the name Sad 13, has published a book of poetry titled Mouth Guard, and has a record label called Wax Nine. Here's Sadie. My dad had a piano in the apartment, and I remember writing a melody over some chords to this children's book called Jamberry. I must have been seven or eight. It's lyrics about blackberries and blueberries and counting them and all that kind of stuff. And then in third grade, I had a very cool best friend named Sydney. We had the same birthday. Uh, Her mom also has my mom's birthday and runs the very cool record label Sargent House. And she got me into No Doubt and Korn and a bunch of other bands that became my favorites. And I started to write songs in my head that were sort of more that style. Uh, Some of which I kind of still remember. Maybe I should record now that I'm 31. But um, I guess music started to become a more serious pursuit for me around that time because I was taking piano lessons too and um, I started singing in children's choirs. So when I was 13, I started learning guitar. Pretty shortly after that, I started writing songs on guitar and recording them at home, maybe when I was 14 or 15. I actually went to a boarding school for a year, very weird experience, Um, went right back to public school after that. But I wrote a diss track towards the end of my one year there about this guy who was like dating all of my friends simultaneously. Um, So I wrote this kind of mean song about this guy Duffy and I put it on the school's file sharing service and it circulated kind of quickly. This was like my first taste of virality. It's like 2001. Weirdly, Lana Del Rey was also a student there at the time. So she might've heard my sort of mean song about this guy. And I was sort of, around the time that I was starting to write songs, I was really into sort of like new metal bands. Like I like Deftones and Incubus a lot. So I think I was always sort of writing with the intention of playing with a band. My first kind of band was a guitar duo with my friend Chelsea, who was in the children's choir, and she's now this really accomplished loudest with the Met Orchestra. You should look her up, Chelsea Knox. So we would sign up for open mics and play shows in church basements and teen centers and things like that. And we would play some covers and we would play some of each other's songs, really just two acoustic guitars or electric guitars, depending on what it was. And maybe a few months later, I started playing in more rock-type bands, like with a drummer, but similar venues. And I was straight-edge in high school, and I was like really confident performing solo. I was in musicals and things like that when I was a teenager, and I think it made it easier to be less shy. And once I got older and started drinking at shows, it actually became a lot harder for me to like play totally sober and basically impossible for me to play solo without 
profusely sweating now, so I'm always sort of in awe of myself as like a 14 to 19-year-old. I just had a lot more confidence than I do now as an adult. I was sort of a chronic overachiever once I was like in sophomore year of high school. I can't really believe I made space for music because it was kind of drilled into me over and over again that it was not a viable career path for me. So I had had kind of a like rough start the first year of high school. I was really depressed and just did terribly in school. And I just like overcompensated for three years, um, overexerting myself in academic fields that I like wasn't truly interested in because I was good enough at them that I thought that's where my job would come from and that's what would, you know, get me into college. But music was the thing I was most passionate about. I didn't even really like see that it could be a route. When I was 16, I, I put songs on MySpace and stuff and I had the number two song on MySpace at some point. But for some reason, it didn't even click to me that that could become my full-time job until I was like 24. I just wanted to, you know, exert myself everywhere, but I didn't nurture the thing that was most important to me in the way that it probably should have happened. Um, and I kind of wish I'd listened to myself. Like, I wish I'd pursued recording engineering more seriously as an academic interest and put in the hours for the thing I really loved. Because I, you know, I did well in college. I got a master's degree. I've had all kinds of real world jobs, but yeah, this is the thing I'm best qualified to do. And I think I knew that on some level when I was a teenager and wish I'd listened to my heart. If you could write a letter to your younger self at that age, what would you say? I would say, I, I say this over and over again, but don't let other people play the guitar solos over your songs when you are better at writing them and better at playing them. You gotta, you gotta have faith in yourself. Even if it's a one note solo, what you thought of is probably awesome. Thank you so much, Sadie, for sharing your story and advice with us. Dear Young Rocker was written and produced by me, Chelsea Arson. I also wrote the theme song. Jake Brennan of Disgraceland is the executive producer, and we come to you from Double Elvis Productions. Thank you to that whole team for giving me this opportunity for DYR. I usually either record myself in my house or at the PRX podcast garage in Boston, but I had the pleasure of visiting the iHeartRadio offices last week in Atlanta, and this episode was recorded down there in the iHeart studios by Taylor Chicoin. Thanks to Noel, Ben, Annie, Samantha, and Chuck for letting me be on your shows and showing me a good time. My friend Jack Pombriant edited, scored, and mixed this episode. I want to give a special shout out to Brady Sadler for doing everything from getting me hooked up with Double Elvis in the first place, through the contract process, and on to marketing and PR and merch and a million other things in between, including just always being a positive force throughout the process of putting the season out. And to Sean Cahalan for taking the time to help with the first few episodes, making a lot of music for them, and continuing to make sure we're doing everything right on every episode up till this very last one. I can't wait to finish the story of Young Chelsea, which has been left hanging, but you'll have to wait for Dear Young Rocker Season 2, which is currently a mystery. If you want that mystery to be revealed, it is within your power to spread the word of Dear Young Rocker to everyone you have ever met 
and everyone you meet who is a musician or is interested in music, you take their phone out of their hand and you hit subscribe on their podcast app to Dear Young Rocker and you force them to listen to it with you. That is what you do, but in a gentle and nice way, of course. And make sure you visit doubleldis.com to find the merch. We have some t-shirts and buttons and there's more stuff coming soon for Dear Young Rocker and there's Disgraceland stuff and Double Elvis stuff. So please buy that stuff if you're interested and take a picture of it and tag me and show me on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. And please keep sending me your messages and your stories. I love hearing them. And please keep sending pictures of you as a young rocker. I'll definitely repost them on Instagram. I love to see it and I love the little community we're building. I won't be gone forever. You know, I have all these letters from these other musicians and I'll keep putting those out whenever I can. And I'll see you on the internet soon. Take care, young rockers. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.